0: Well, if you haven't noticed, we're beginning with the same chapter with which we ended last week. Because as we've already seen, the principle of love is at the centre of all that these chapters are teaching about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This uh, chapter, chapter 13, traditionally uh, gets used at weddings. But when Paul was writing, he wasn't thinking of a wedding, he was thinking of the the regular gathering of God's people, the church. The world's saying a lot about love, isn't it, at the moment. What makes Christian love distinct from the love of the world? Well, it's that love is not just being nice to one another. It's not just saying... I'll allow or celebrate what you're doing as long as it makes you happy because that's the most important thing. Love is defined by the action of God in Jesus Christ. In this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Worldly love is always convenient for me. I give, but in a way that doesn't threaten my abundance. Uh, I allow you to live how you choose providing it doesn't infringe upon my rights. But gospel love seen in Christ is self-sacrificial. It's laying aside my rights. It's giving even when it hurts because that's how love is made explicit to us in God's actions towards us. It's the love that Paul describes here in 1 Corinthians 13, a love that demonstrates and flows from a maturity in Christ. A child in their immaturity, tends to think and act and live with a self-focus. But as they grow up, they learn to live with an other-person focus. The Father wants us to be childlike in our receiving of his kingdom, but he wants us to be adults in our loving and in our serving. In verse 10, what is this perfect thing that comes and when will it come? That's a question that uh, scholars and theologians have discussed and debated over time. This word for perfect here is the, the word telos which means completion. It's the word that Jesus called out from the cross moments before his death when he said, it is finished. So it means perfect, not in the sense of being without fault, as we might tend to use that word perfect, but in the sense that there's no missing piece. It's a plan fulfilled. It's a promise kept. It's a task Completed a shadow that's become the reality. Now some have suggested that uh, this is a reference to the completion of the New Testament. And now that we have the word of God in written form, able to be passed on from generation to generation without being changed or lost, They say then these word gifts, the gifts of prophecy and tongues and knowledge uh, are no longer needed as they were in the early church because they didn't have the complete New Testament. Personally I think that's kind of stretching it a bit uh, and actually reading into this passage something that's not explicitly there. In other places, Paul is very explicit and clear on the authority and the sufficiency of the scriptures. He tells Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, I think if Paul was referring here to the scriptures, he probably would have been more direct in referring to it. The immediate context, though, tells us that uh, what he's referring to is in uh, verse 12 here. There will be a time when we will see face to face, unlike now when we see uh, as only in a mirror Remember, mirrors then were nothing like mirrors we have today. It's only fairly recently that we've been able to produce mirrors that show a perfect, flawless, uh, and for some of us, um, unfortunately, more detailed image than we'd like to see of ourselves. Back then, mirrors were a piece of polished metal. Uh, It wouldn't have shown a perfect, clear, complete image In this age we walk by faith, not by sight. We hold on to the message of Jesus that we've received in the Scriptures, but the time will come when we will see him face to face. At that time we will know fully just as he knows us fully, not meaning that we'll be all-knowing as God is, but our knowledge of God will be complete and sufficient and no longer subject to the doubt and the fear and the uncertainty that we struggle with in this present age. Jeremiah describes that when he describes the time when no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So the Spirit gives gifts to the church in this church age to to enable us to stand firm in our faith, to faithfully proclaim the gospel to the world and to prepare ourselves for that day when those gifts will no longer be needed. Because they would have reached their fulfilment, their telos in the the fine, pure linen that the bride of Christ is clothed in. So as we live now in light of that day, we should exercise the gifts that the Spirit gives us in light of their temporary nature. So we're told in verse 8, that prophecies and tongues and knowledge will pass away. Now that's true not just for the future, but in a sense it's also true for us in the present. A prophecy, a tongue, a word of knowledge given for a certain time, a certain situation, will be fulfilled in time and then in the future will no longer necessarily be relevant except to look back and to remember how God spoke and how he was faithful to his word. Even this sermon, well I pray that it is God's word and in that sense will always be true and relevant To some extent, it's still the word that he is giving us here today for us as Bethel Christian Church in our time and in our place. Someone might listen to it on the internet in 10 years time and it may be of some benefit to them, but it won't be the same as the fresh word that God is giving to his church in 2031. The the word that the church will need in 2031. So in a sense you could say we move on from the word for today always ready to receive the word for tomorrow. But we never move on from the commands to love. Love never ends. When John was reminding God's people of the commandment that Jesus gave to love one another as He has loved us. He writes, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandments, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This commandment, love one another, is both old and new because it's never changed and it never will. In the new creation, we will still know the command and obey the command to love one another. So love is the overarching principle that guides us as we, whatever we do and however we do it, as we gather as the church to worship. It's such an important principle for us to remember, to hold fast to, especially in the contemporary church culture where sometimes the Sunday gathering is described as an awesome worship experience. Worship is marketed as a consumer item. You can pick the version of worship that gives you what you most want for yourself. You can even just stay home and put on the CD if you want. And probably when we generally think of the church practising love, we think of community programs, helping the poor, providing pastoral care, counselling, helping the sick and the grieving, all of the things that go on in between the Sunday services and the formal gatherings. But what of Sunday? What of when we sit in this building and worship? This is the gathering that actually gives the church its identity. We are the ecclesia, the called out and gathered together ones. Well, chapter 14 gives us two key expressions of love that we might easily overlook as loving but really are key expressions of love when we gather. The first is ensuring a clear communication of God's Word and the second is doing things decently and in order. We'll look at the first one today and we'll look at the second one next week. To illustrate the point of clear communication of God's Word, Paul contrast these two gifts of tongues and prophecy. The Corinthian context actually wasn't too different to our context here as a church in terms of languages. The common language in that part of the world at that time was Greek. Greek was used in the marketplace, in business, in talking to your neighbours, Uh, in public meetings because it was the common language that you could assume that the vast majority of people could speak and understand. But then people would have also known at least one or more other languages connected with their own ethnic backgrounds. That may have been the language that they used in their homes, amongst their family members, uh, amongst their cultural groups. And I think there's there's probably only a few of us here at Bethel who are unique in that we only speak one language. Uh, many of you know that experience. Uh, maybe if English is not your second language, you communicate generally English, but your heart language is the language that you grew up with and spoke in the home with your parents. Now, what was remarkable about the Christian church is that it was made up of people who, to use the language of Revelation 7, were from every nation, tribe, people and language. We heard last week about the Jewish, um, probably Aramaic speaking Jews, who went with Peter to bring the gospel to a group of Gentiles. And they were amazed when they heard them speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit, extolling God in Tongues, not just in the Greek. That was probably the language that Peter was speaking as he preached to them. It had had taken some time for the Jewish people to come to terms with the fact that there were actually Jews in the world who actually no longer had Hebrew or Aramaic as their first language, but actually spoke Greek. And it took a little while also for the Jewish Christians to come to terms with hearing... People praising God in languages that they would have called barbarian. Languages that didn't even have a written form. But that was the miracle of Pentecost. The promise that when the Holy Spirit was poured out, the blessing of the gospel would be taken to the ends of the earth in fulfilment of the promise to Abraham to bless every nation on earth. So what did that mean then when the Church gathered as an assembly of Jews and Greeks and Romans and barbarians, of locals and migrants, uh, of slaves who would have come from all kinds of ethnic and language backgrounds, anywhere between Africa to Asia, to, to Europe? What how were they to be unified with all of their cultural and their linguistic backgrounds? Well, firstly, it would have been an incredibly wondrous experience to be side by side with brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe and tongue. To be standing next to someone who could say, Jesus is Lord in their mother tongue, despite their ethnicity, their nationality, They were all citizens of the Kingdom of God. They were all joint heirs of the Father in Christ. A few weeks ago I mentioned my visit to a Jain festival. The Jain religion claims to be the truth about God and life. Therefore, it should be relevant to all people, shouldn't it? However, what stood out to me as I was there amongst the only other uh, two Australians that were there, everything was in the Indian language. It's because it's a religion that while it claims to be the truth, aligns itself with an ethnic group. Think of Islam. Islam is a missionary religion. It claims to, to, to have a message that everyone in the world should come into and believe but it's still very culturally Arabic to the point that the only official version of the Quran you're supposed to read is the Arabic version. You have to actually learn Arabic to understand your scriptures if you're a Muslim. The Gospel, on the other hand, transcends culture and language. The Church isn't and shouldn't ever be defined by culture or ethnicity or language. As I've said in the past, Bethel isn't an Asian church and it's not an Aussie church. We are the church. We are members of the body of Christ and we happen to come from a variety of different cultural and language and ethnic backgrounds. But we are all one in Jesus Christ. A church that defines itself by its ethnicity is actually acting counter to the promise to Abraham. But because of that, because we are from different nationalities and backgrounds, but one in Christ, we need to ensure that with our mix of languages, the word of God is still being clearly communicated. So Paul says, prefer prophecy over tongues. Prefer a word given in the common language that all can understand rather than in a a language, a tongue that only a few can understand. Now whether we understand tongues here to be um, a naturally spoken language that the, the speaker understands or whether it's a miraculously given language from the spirit that maybe not even the speaker understands as they're speaking. The principle's the same, isn't it? I'm not to speak for my benefit, but for the benefit of the church. And this is the principle that's driven home in verses 2 to 19. Uh, It's a passage that kind of feels a little bit repetitive, but it's because Paul is wanting to really drive this point home and he comes at it from multiple angles. Firstly, he mentions three ways in which tongues, while good, are not to be preferred over prophecy. So in verses 2 to 3, there's nothing wrong with speaking to God in a tongue. It's a gift of the Spirit. A wonderful thing that I'm able to praise Him in that way. That God wants me to address Him in my heart language. But that's not why I'm part of the gathering of God's people. I can speak to him when I'm on my own in private, but when we're together in public, I should speak for the benefit of others. There are three words that he uses here, upbuilding, encouragement and consolation. Upbuilding, it means as it sounds, building one another up by speaking God's word into their lives, Like Jesus said, if anyone builds on my words, they'll be like the person who builds on a solid foundation. Encouraging means literally to call someone to your side. It's like a, a rallying call, a spurring one another on to love and good deeds. And consolation literally means to come alongside someone where they're at to speak words of comfort and peace. So all three of these words, upbuilding, encouragement and consolation, obviously require clear, Christ-focused communication. Then... He says, well, there's nothing wrong with me building myself up by speaking the word of God to myself. That's a good thing. It's a biblical thing to, to say the words of Psalm 42, 5, why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. So it's a good thing to speak God's word to yourself, but that's not why I'm here as part of the gathering. I'm not here to build myself up, but to build others up. So when I'm speaking to or in, within earshot of one another, it should be done in a way that's clear and that points my brother and sister to Jesus. So this isn't, verse 4, there isn't a, an instruction on how to use tongues to build yourself up, Actually, it's kind of the opposite, isn't it? To avoid tongues in a context where it'll build me up, but no one else. And then third, in verse 5, Paul says, I want everyone to speak in tongues. Why? Remember Paul's mission. His mission is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to every nation, tribe, people and tongue. Paul loves the idea as Jesus does, of a church made up of all kinds of people, able to praise God and to declare Jesus is Lord in many tongues. But he loves even more the idea of a church that is standing united under hearing the Word of God. Secondly, he gives us two little examples to illustrate the importance of clarity in our speaking. Firstly, think of a musical instrument. What if this morning Phil played the, the tune to O oh Great God when we were supposed to be singing Holy, Holy, Holy? There needs to be a congruence between the music that's played and the words we sing. Or think of a, an army camped for battle. In those days, as until fairly recently, the the bugle was used to communicate to the soldiers what they were supposed to do. Different melodies played by the bugle said different things. Get ready, attack, retreat. So imagine if the bugle player played the retreat tune instead of the get ready tune. Likewise, Paul says, languages are created by God for communication. What you speak in your own language might mean something to you. The bugle player might think he's playing the right tune, but the soldiers will hear something different. Unless what I'm saying can be translated into the language the whole church speaks, I may as well be speaking into the air. And in fact, doing this will undermine the Gospel. Rather than becoming one in Christ, we will, we're told in verse 11, remain as foreigners and allowing language to divide us. Then in verses 14 to 19, he goes back to the language of spirituality. Remember he started with that language in the start of verse of chapter 12. Remember how the Corinthians were seeing their ability to speak in tongues, tongues of men and supposedly tongues of angels as as a sign of their great spirituality. And in Greek thinking there was a distinction that was made between spirit and mind. The mind was considered part of the bodily, physical existence whereas the spirit was how a person connected with the other realm, the spiritual, non-physical realm. They believed that you must turn off your mind in order to receive inspiration or enlightenment. So when the pagans spoke in tongues... In their pagan worship, they'd go into a trance and they would be unable to communicate with those around them because there was, in their belief, a direct spiritual connection with the other realm. But can you see how this uh, expression, this seeking this kind of spiritual experience when speaking in tongues is, again, it's not helpful for building others up. What benefit is it to my brothers and sisters if all they can do is watch me in a trance, supposedly speaking only to myself and to God, even less than if I'm not in a trance but I'm just speaking a language they can't understand. So instead, we're told, Paul says, to pray and sing both with our spirit and our mind. Verse 15... If we're using our mind, that means we are being mindful of one another. It means others will be able to say amen to what we say. There's a fascinating video doing the rounds of the internet that claims to provide scientific proof for speaking in tongues. And it documents an experiment in which people's brain activity was monitored as they first prayed in English and then prayed in tongues. When speaking English, the, the monitor showed that the frontal lobe, which is the part of the brain that controls language, was active. It, it lit up on the, in the scan. Then, when speaking in tongues, the frontal lobe went quiet. Uh, In this video it's claimed as proof that when someone speaks in tongues it's the Holy Spirit who takes control and speaks through them. In actual fact, I, I think the experiment demonstrates that these people aren't actually speaking in the kind of tongues that Paul is describing here in chapter 14. True tongues do and must engage the mind, the brain. The the frontal lobe they should activate that frontal lobe which God designed and gave us so that we can speak languages and tongues the Holy Spirit empowers our speaking but he doesn't rob us of our self-control self-control is a fruit of the spirit we call to love God with our minds just as much as we love him with our body and our soul and our heart. In the same way, when we obey the commandment to love one another, we must also use our minds, being mindful to speak clear words of upbuilding and encouragement and conservation. Thirdly, then we come to The most conclusive argument for preferring prophecy over tongues, and it's conclusive because it's an argument from Scripture. Verse 21 is a quotation from Isaiah 28. Let's look at that verse in uh, its original context. Isaiah 28 from verse 7. Even these men stagger because of wine, they stumble around because of beer, priests and prophets stagger because of beer. They are confused because of wine. They stumble around because of beer. They stagger while seeing prophetic visions. They totter while making legal decisions. Indeed, all the tables are covered with vomit. No place is untouched. Who is the Lord trying to teach? To whom is he explaining a message? Those just weaned from milk. Those just taken from their mother's breast. Indeed, they will hear meaningless gibberish, senseless babbling, a syllable here, a syllable there. For with mocking lips and a foreign tongue, he will speak to these people. In the past, he said to them, this is where security can be found. Provide security for the one who is exhausted. This is where rest can be found. But they refuse to listen. So the Lord's word to them will sound like meaningless gibberish, senseless babbling, a syllable here, a syllable there. As a result, they will fall on their backsides when they try to walk and be injured, ensnared and captured. Isaiah is prophesying a coming judgement on Israel. The priests and the prophets were corrupt. They were given to drunkenness so that their their messages to the people were incomprehensible. And the people themselves verse 9 the people themselves were not able and actually not even willing to hear God's word. And it was just like trying to communicate with a small baby. Have you ever had a Conversation with a three-month-old. The Hebrew in verse 10 and 13 is—it's actually impossible to translate because it's not actually words. It's nonsensical syllables. It's mimicking the sound of a drunk person or a baby. It reads, "Sav, sav, sav, sav." Kav, le kav kav lekav. So this is the people who are refusing to hear the word of the Lord, and so God's judgment on them, verse thirteen, will be to actually take away their ability to hear, and instead, He'll go and make Himself known to people of other nations. He'll reveal Himself to them. And then these Gentiles will begin speaking his word in their languages and Israel will hear them speak but in languages that they can't understand. And in, so God's word to them will sound like the babbling of a baby. Sav, 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 cav, la cav, cav, la cav. That's why Paul says, do not be children in your thinking. An infant thinks they're talking but they're really babbling. An adult adult thinks and speaks thoughtfully and intelligibly. So that's why in verse 22 Paul says, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. God's words spoken in an intelligible tongue is a sign that because of my unbelief I'm under God's judgment. I'm unable to... Make sense of what he's speaking because God is concealing it from me. What a terrible place to be in. Yet that was the judgment on the Jews in New Testament times. They'd reject Jesus as Messiah despite the clear and persistent word that God had spoken to them over the centuries. It should have been obvious to them when Jesus arrived that he is the fulfilment of all of the prophecies but they largely rejected him and so when the gospel started going to the Gentiles they began experiencing the fulfilment of Isaiah 28. They began hearing God's word spoken and people extolling him in other tongues. So, do we want the church to be a place where the judgement of God is worked out by people being shut out from hearing God's word or do we want it to be a place of blessing and salvation where the gospel is proclaimed and taught and spoken with clarity? It's not just the health of the church that's at stake. Jesus is building his church not only through bringing us to maturity in Christ but also through adding to the church those who are being saved and he does that often by bringing people to the church to hear the word of Christ. And that's what Paul picks up on in verses 23 to 25. This should be our prayer for our church. And I was just, when I was typing out those prayers from Friday night, I was just really encouraged to think this is, this is what we as a church are praying for that came through so clearly in those prayers. That he will bring to us unbelievers and outsiders who as a result of being among us will fall on their face and worship God. That first category of person, the Uh, unbeliever speaks for itself. An unbeliever is someone who does not have faith yet in Jesus. And we should pray that anyone who comes along to our church will be hearing the call of the gospel to repent and believe in Jesus, that the Spirit will be at work in their hearts to enable them to respond to that call. The second category, the outsider recognises that there are those who aren't even at the stage of being able to respond to the call to repent and believe because their understanding of Jesus is so limited, maybe even non-existent. The actual word there for outsider is idiotes. We get it from that, our English word idiot. It means someone who has not yet learnt. So our speaking should always be with these people in mind, not presuming that everyone has the same level of knowledge or teaching or upbringing in the church, always ready to take the time and the effort to explain what we believe or why we do what we do, always conscious of whether what we say or how we say it might be obscuring the message of the cross rather than making it clearer. While there will be things that we say and do that will be strange to a new person and we shouldn't dumb down the word, we shouldn't stop doing things in worship that God commands us to do, we should always be ready, as Peter tells us, to give a reason to anyone who asks for the hope that is in us. We should also care and love the outsider so much that we'll be mindful of what we say and how we say it, that we won't make those assumptions about what uh, we think they may or may not know. Of course, on a personal level, that actually means we need to do a lot more listening first before talking, showing care for a person by being willing to enter into their world first so that we can actually understand them, know what makes them tick, so that when the Spirit opens up the opportunity for us to speak, we will give words that are appropriate for them, that actually reaches and takes Christ to their heart. That's why we're running The Authentic Life. It's an opportunity for unbelievers and outsiders to come into a setting that doesn't feel too strange or too religious where they can hear the Gospel presented in a clear and plain way, where words and ideas will be explained, where there's opportunities for questions and discussion and where they'll see the the reality of Christ expressed through hospitality and through relationships. It'll mean that if someone decides to come along to Sunday Sunday, Service as a result of attending the authentic life, then they'll already have received some basic understanding, some kind of foundational ideas, and they'll be able to comprehend a bit more what we say and what we do when we worship. So let's be praying that what Paul describes in these verses will be our experience that not only those of us who speak from the front, but all of us will be empowered by the Spirit to know and speak of Christ crucified. Let's pray that the Gospel as the power of God for salvation will be not only spoken by us who believe to one another who believe, but that His power will be used to bring many others to come to believe in Him as we do. Let's pray. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you empower and gift us to speak your word, to not only know and understand what your word says to us, but that you enable us to speak it clearly uh, and boldly. And that is our prayer for us as a church and for each of us as individuals that we will in no way whether it by speaking or living obscure the wonderful message of Christ crucified risen and coming again we pray this in his name, Amen so let's stand and sing our final hymn that reminds us uh, all that we speak all that we do is for Christ alone